Morning, everybody. Morning, everybody online. We're glad you could join us today as well. Uh, I am not much of a gambler, um, just too rich for my blood. Uh, so I've never really bet on sports or anything. It's just never, never really appealed to me. However, if there was a time, if there was such a thing as a sure thing, I might be a little more open to the idea. I mean, it would have to be pretty buttoned up tight. Like, there is no possible way I could even remotely come close to losing. Like, it would have to be a true, sure thing. I know those are very rare, probably don't exist, but if something like that did exist, I might be compelled to bet big, to go all in even maybe, if it was a true, sure thing. And maybe as you wrestle with that question in your head, would, would you go all in? Would, would I? Wouldn't I? Like if it was a sure thing, if there was no possible way you could lose. And some people might say, it's risky. I don't know. And you're right. It is, it is risky. When you bet on something, you could lose. And you could lose big. You could lose everything. But that's kind of the nature of a, a risk. It's risky the other way, too. Like if we don't bet big, if we kiss this sure thing goodbye, you could be missing out on one of those rare, true, once-in-a-lifetime opportunities that makes a huge difference in life? Would you go in on a true, sure thing? That's kind of the nature of the topic we're wrestling with this morning. And obviously, we're not talking about betting on sports or anything like that. It's a little bigger than that. Today, we're going to be wrapping up a series we've been in for four weeks now called Champions. And in this series, we've been looking at the hope and the promises we have in the gospel, how we experience those and can be confident and assured of those, even though life stinks sometimes, or we don't feel victorious, we don't feel like champions. In fact, we feel like we're kind of getting pounded on a little bit. We deal with the mess of sin in our lives. That's what our series has been about. We're wrapping that conversation up today, but we're wrapping up more than just this series. For the past year, we've been preaching out of the book of Romans. Every sermon has either come directly from that book or it's come from something inspired by what that book has to say. That's been the, the basis of our sermon catalog this year. And today, we're also wrapping up our time in that book. And I can't think of a better way to close out Romans than with our passage today. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn there follow along. If you don't have your Bible, you can always follow along on the screen behind, or you can download the FCC Mammoth app to your mobile device, tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find our sermon notes along with our passages pulled up, ready for you to engage with, take some notes on, and get the most out of this time. So back to this idea of a, a sure thing. It's kind of a hokey way to say it, maybe, but it is true. The gospel is God's sure thing. In it, we have this promise of victory that cannot be undone or snatched away. But as we've said throughout this series, that does not mean that life is going to be easier. Saying yes to God, saying yes to the invitation in the gospel certainly does not make life simpler. It doesn't make sure everything's going to be smooth sailing from here on out. Quite the opposite, actually. Life continues to be a challenge. Sometimes it's even more of a challenge. And we acknowledge that in the very first week of this series. We read in chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's right there in the opening words, our present sufferings. Scripture makes no bones about it. We will experience difficulty and hardship that can accurately be described as suffering. And we experience these sufferings in a lot of different ways from a lot of different 
directions. Sometimes we experience sufferings because of the mess of the world around us, the fact that things are broken, that they don't function the way they ought, the way that our relationships are impacted, the way that creation itself is impacted. Sometimes that's where the suffering comes from. Other times we experience that suffering because of the the frailty or the weaknesses in our own flesh, whether it be the the shortcomings of our will and our righteousness or just the shortcomings of being mortal people with bodies that give way to mortality. We experience sufferings in so many different ways, and that was acknowledged in weeks two and three of our series where we read from Romans chapter 8 verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So creation, it is recognizing, hey, things are messed up, and it is groaning in those frustrations. We who have received God's Holy Spirit, who, who have tasted kind of the, the first part of His work, we acknowledge, hey, things are messed up in our own flesh, in our own bodies, and we groan in frustrations. But these groanings are more than just angry, disappointments, frustrations kind of groaning. It's also a groaning of expectation. And I hope you heard that in the passage. It is longing for the day when our groaning ceases. Creation is longing and awaiting the day when the mess is finally and fully addressed. We are waiting and longing for the day when when our weaknesses are overcome by God's transformative power, when, when justice is served, when wrongs are righted, when things are finally as they should be. That's what we all long for. That's our hope. Something called restoration, renewal, that day when God makes all things new. In the meantime, though, we still have to make our way through this world and its difficulties and its challenges, and that's why God has provided His Holy Spirit to minister to us in these days. We read about that in verse 26 of Romans, talked about it in last week's message. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. The Spirit of God ministers to us and strengthens us so that we can keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep moving forward. Yes, things are hard, but God is by our side in the thick of this. This morning, though, I want to raise a question, a really uncomfortable question that we're going to wrestle with. Ease, comfort, contentment, that's oftentimes what we seek out. We don't want the mess in our lives, in other words. But what if ease is not good for us? What if suffering, as our passage calls it, in all its different varieties and contexts, what if that is essential to the work that God is trying to accomplish in us? It's a very uncomfortable question because it means that somehow we have to find a way to embrace that which hurts and which is difficult and frustrating, the source of our groaning. And yet it is an essential and worthwhile question to wrestle with. It makes sense if we're talking about renewal and restoration. If you talk about those concepts in any other context, restoration is preceded by necessary destruction. If you're restoring a house, before you can make it new, you have to rip out all of the rotted wood. You have to rip out all of the defective electrical work. You have to tear things out and break it down so that you can build it back up and make it new. If you're restoring a piece of furniture, you have to sand off the old cracked finish and repair that which was broken before it can truly be new. 
restoration requires suffering, you might say. Or you look at the concept of victory. Victory is only possible and can only exist if there is some sort of obstacle or opposition over which to be victorious. I can't have a life of ease with zero challenge and say, I've won the victory. There was no battle fought. You look at the the context of the military battle or military victory, there's an enemy that has to be overcome. Or an athletic competition, there's an adversary that has to be overcome. Or even in our personal lives, if we have a goal that we're striving towards, there's usually a difficulty that has to be overcome for victory to exist. It makes sense that the same would hold true for God's work in our lives. If He is going to restore us, if there's going to be victory, suffering becomes essential. That's something that our passage draws to our attention. If you want to look at verse 28, it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, specifically who have been called according to His purpose. All things, by the way, does not mean all good things or all pleasurable things, or all ease, uh, easy things. It's all things, the good things, the bad things, the highs, the lows, the ease, the suffering, all of it, God uses. He works in that for the good, or we might understand that as the benefit, and not even of everybody, but specifically of those who love Him, who have said yes to His invitation in the gospel, who belong to Him. Those are the people into whose lives He reaches and works in all things for their good and benefit. Uh, I would also point out, this passage does not say God works for the good that His loved ones want. It's tempting to read that at times, because we oftentimes assume that what we want is good for us. For example, this week I, I was standing in my refrigerator, and I looked inside, and inside there was this big can of Pepsi Nitro. I don't know what they put in it to make it nitro, but it's delicious. Uh, it's, it's smooth, it's frothy, it's vanilla-y, if that's a word. It's delicious. And I saw it in my fridge, which is a rarity because we don't usually buy soda pop. And so I saw it, I knew it looked good, I knew it tasted good, I wanted it, I assumed this is going to be good. And then I looked at my wristwatch and was reminded that it was 7.30 in the morning and that soda probably isn't the best way to start the day. Maybe this, from a health perspective, is not actually going to be good for me. So like a good hypocrite, I went and made a cup of coffee. But, you know, the point is, what we want is not always good for us. And sometimes we can become convinced in our minds, ease, the ease that I want, that's going to be good for me. Or if something were a little different, if I had more money, or if my body was a little healthier, or if I had a different job, or I had a different relationship, or if I had a relationship, or if this had changed, or if that had changed, then my life would be better. I would be better, right? But as we've seen, what we want is not always what's best for us, nor is this what God promises to work. He promises to work through the good, the bad, and the ugly, and all things, including our suffering, for the benefit of His people. And there's a specific benefit that he has in mind. Oh, my goodness. Hey, we're okay. We're okay. Everything's good. As long as the screen isn't cracked, we're good. We're good. Okay, we're good. It'll be the second phone I broke in two months. Okay. There's a specific benefit that he has in mind. Verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 
The specific good that God is working towards is not a matter of an easy life for us or a life in which we're happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise, right? Rather, the good he's working for is specifically that you and I would be conformed to the image of Jesus, that we would be changed in our hearts, in our minds, in our conduct, in our relationships, in our faith, in our perspective, you name it, changed to look like Jesus. Or in other words, his purpose is that we look less and less like rebels and sinners, tears down all of the defective parts of our world within us, and rebuilds us into renewed, restored victors like Jesus. That's the purpose. That's the plan and the goal. And honestly, when you understand that's what God is doing in our lives, that's his agenda, this whole bit about suffering starts to make a little bit more sense. If the goal is to look like Jesus, then we need to remember who Jesus is. Suffering was kind of his whole thing. The reason he came into this world was for the purpose of suffering on our behalf. He bore a cross and died so that we could live, that our sin could be atoned for. He was broken that we could be mended and healed. Suffering was the entirety of his calling, and it is the climax of his work at this point in his existence. There will come a day when there's a little bit higher celebration, but as of right now, this is the most climactic thing Jesus has accomplished, and it was a matter of suffering. If that's who we are called to look like and to follow, Suffering seems to be an inevitable, maybe even an essential part of that process. It's kind of like that game, Follow the Leader, if you think back to your playground days. Kids, I don't know if you still play that. There was this game called Follow the Leader, and the purpose was very simple. Follow the leader. You went wherever this person went. And I don't know about your playground, but on my playground, they were always very mean. They chose difficult paths on purpose. You didn't walk these nice, easy paths, and you just sort of sashayed all over. No, you had winding paths. You had to go under playground equipment. You had to walk over balance beams and swing across the monkey bars. It was a difficult path. But if you wanted to win the game and be victorious... You had to go where the leader went, wherever that was, regardless of how challenging it might be. And that essentially is what God has called us to. If we are going to follow the leader, so to speak, if we're going to be conformed to look like Jesus, that means going where he went, regardless of the path, regardless of the suffering. In fact, imitating him and looking like him, suffering kind of becomes an essential part of that process. Now, that seems like a lot to swallow, but we are reminded through all of this that even in this suffering, God is working for our good, for our benefit, to bring us to that inevitable conclusion. That does not mean that God is responsible for our suffering, that he causes our cancer, that he causes our bankruptcy, that he causes us to lose our job, that he causes our loved one to die, that he causes our depression and despair, and, and, and all. That's not what this is saying. Rather, this is a passage that reminds us, not that everything has a silver lining or has a purpose, it reminds us that we have an almighty, sovereign God who cannot be stopped or deterred in His purposes. A sovereign God who can reach into every single aspect of our lives, no matter how uncomfortable and unfortunate and messed up it is, and work in only a way that He can to produce a benefit in our lives. 
That's what this passage is reminding us. God's purposes are inevitable, unalterable. They cannot be stopped. And that purpose is to call you to look like Christ Jesus. To be a champion. Now, that's a lot to take in. We might be saying, conceptually, I get that, okay? I understand that, but like, I'm in the middle of suffering now, and life is messed up for various reasons or whatever. That's a hard pill to swallow. Like, how do I know I can really trust God to do that in this moment? That what hurts so much right now is genuinely going to be for my good in the long run. And I will tell you why you can take this to the bank and trust it. God cannot afford for this plan or purpose to fail. I don't know what your view of God is and if that statement makes you a little uncomfortable, but that's the reality of the situation. He cannot afford for this plan to fail. He cannot afford for his people not to look like Jesus and to be restored and renewed. And we know that because of how verse 29 ended, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. There's a reason why God reaches into our lives and uses all things, good, bad, and ugly, to shape us to look like Jesus. And it's for this purpose that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, you and I, we are the brothers and sisters in this passage. When we said yes to the gospel, we were adopted into the family of God. We became his children. Therefore, we are brothers and sisters with the only begotten son, Jesus He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, Hebrews reminds us. So we can call him brother, right? But we are not the same because he is the firstborn in this family. And in an ancient Jewish context, the firstborn son, he had a lot of responsibility placed on his shoulders. There was a special calling and a special duty that he and only he could carry and bear. But with that responsibility and duty also came a special level of reward. He received double the inheritance of any other child in the family. He was exalted and honored because of his role. And that essentially is what God is doing for Jesus. You might think about it like this. Here's kind of a, an illustration. In, uh, in Britain, there was a man named Sir Nicholas Winton. And Winton was a man uh, who lived throughout the World War II era. He was just a you know, normal guy. But he was responsible for saving 669 children from concentration camps. Uh, Later, he'd go on to be called Britain's Schindler. And the most remarkable part about his story, actually, is that he never told anybody about this. Like, not even his wife. But he did have this scrapbook. And he kept it in his attic, and in it had the names of... Oops, I'm just breaking everything today. He had the names of of all the kids that he had helped and rescued. He had like little tidbits about them if if he had something. Just this scrapbook, this record. And one day that scrapbook was discovered and it was brought to the the media and this guy became an overnight sensation in Britain and his story was celebrated. He became a household name. And the nation wanted to honor this man for his heroic works and saving so many people. And so they put this television program together. And they broadcast it all over Britain, and, and the, it kind of recounted the story and told the context and the difficulty and all the different bits. And then at the end of the, the presentation, Winton was kind of surprised. He was seated in the front row in the studio audience, and the television host, she brought over a microphone and gave it to the woman sitting next to Nicholas Winton. And she introduced herself, and she began to recount the story of how he had saved her decades ago. 
and her life and how it had blossomed and what she'd become because of the work of this man in saving her. It was a beautiful moment, you know, and they embraced and they, they wept and everybody clapped and celebrated. And then the television host said, that's a beautiful story. Is there anybody else here whose life has been saved by the work of this man so many years ago? And then face after face started to show up, rising from their seat. Row after row, dozens and dozens of people, all sitting around this man. And when he turned around and he looked at them, all their faces were beaming, celebrating him, thanking him, praising him for how he had saved them so many years ago. Beautiful story. I'm not going to show the video because I cry every time I watch it. I don't want to do that. But it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. That's what God is cobbling together for Jesus in you. His agenda, His purpose for your life is not actually to make it happy, healthy, wealthy, wise, not to make it easy. His purpose is to make you look more and more like Jesus, restored, redeemed, and renewed because of what he did. Because there's a day coming when he intends to pack every square inch of heaven with the redeemed and the renewed people of this family. Where they all stand. And they praise, and they exalt, and they thank this man for what he did to save them so many years ago, where all of heaven sings his praises and lifts him high. That's God's plan and purpose, that Jesus might be exalted the way he deserves he gave up more than anyone can imagine on the cross. And he sacrificed more than we could conceive. So it is only fitting and right that he receive more praise than anyone could imagine and that he be exalted higher than anyone could conceive. And that's why you have to be there to make it happen. Because if you are not there on that day, that is one less voice singing his praise. And that is one less face testifying to the redeeming work that he did in defeating sin. And God will not stand for that. He will not allow Christ to receive anything less than the unanimous praise of creation. So he's going to work in your life. He's going to work in the good, and he's going to work in the sucky parts, in the mess. And he's going to use all of it to redeem and to renew and to restore you and shape you to look more and more like Jesus because that's what Christ deserves. He will not let this plan fail. You will be a champion. It's a sure thing. It's a bet you can absolutely take. And again, we might say, okay, well, that's, that's heavy. That's a lot. I believe it. But that's a lot to, to take in. 
I would encourage you to consider how the deck has been even further stacked in your favor. Like if this is difficult to understand or to take in or to accept that even my sufferings are instruments for God's good, just take a look at how our passage continues. It talks about how the gospel can be called a sure thing because God has stacked the deck in such a huge way. Let's keep reading. Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? It's this question. If God, if if the creator of heaven and earth, if the ruler of all things is in our corner, if he is using everything at his disposal, even our sufferings, to shape us to look like Christ so that we can have this ultimate benefit of eternal life and restoration and renewal, if he's working in such huge ways, what on earth could get in our way? What could stop us? What could hinder us? What could threaten us? Like even the challenges in my life in his sovereign hands are used for my good. So what opposition is left? Nothing. There's no reason to fear the challenges. There's no reason to be afraid of the mess anymore in our lives. Does it feel good? No. Is it for a good purpose? Absolutely, because our God is sovereign and uses all things for the good of those who love him. God is in our corner. The proof is, as he pointed out, he gave us his only son. He gave us the most precious and costly gift at his disposal. He's not going to withhold lesser things from us now. It'd be like if somebody were to come up to you and say, I just love you so much. I want you to have this beautiful mountaintop villa, fully furnished. It's yours, free and clear, just because I love you. It's my gift to you. And you say, oh, thank you. That means so much. (sighs) My breath's a little stinky. Could I have a piece of gum before we hug? And I thank you. Oh, no, this is my gum. You love me enough to give me this house, but you don't love me enough to give me a piece of gum? Like, that, that doesn't make sense. People won't do that, and neither will God. If he, if he has given you his most precious and costly son, he's not going to withhold his spirit from you. He's not going to withhold his work in your life. He's not going to withhold his encouragement. He's not going to withhold his reward. He is going to give you everything he has, and the evidence is that he's already given you the most costly and precious thing at his disposal, Jesus. He is absolutely in your corner. And if that were not enough, keep looking at how the deck is stacked. I love this. This is verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. So who then is the one that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. I always imagine a, a heavenly courtroom scene when I read this passage. I invite you to come with me in my weird mind. So it's this courtroom scene. It's your day. You're standing before the judge to, to be eternally judged. And there's this prosecutor who comes out with this huge book of all your wrongs and sins. And he just starts lighting you up. He's going through every sin you've ever committed, every sin you've ever thought about committing, every crossword, every tear that you've caused, every heartache you're responsible for, every way that you've contributed to the brokenness of this mess in this world. He just lists it all and you feel less than this big. And when he concludes his case, he says, there you go. There is absolutely no way this person deserves your mercy. There is no way they deserve your gift or your grace. So you give them what they deserve. And then Jesus, your defense attorney, stands up and he walks over to the judge on his bench and he just simply says, hey, points to his hands, 
you, you and I, we already took care of this. And the judge says, you're absolutely right. Go have your seat. But instead of coming and sitting next to you, your defense attorney, Jesus, he goes and he sits in the jury box, sits down, and immediately stands up and says, we the jury find the defendant not guilty. And the judge says, good enough for me, bang, not guilty, free and clear. That's the scenario that this passage is painting. Your defense attorney and the judge and the jury have all conspired together ahead of time to make sure your sins are atoned for, that you are forgiven and innocent and righteous. God has stacked the deck in your favor. It's not a question of can he deliver me. It's not a question of will he deliver me. It's not a question of is he big enough to use even my sufferings to accomplish his purposes in my life. None of those questions are even on the table. It's a sure thing. The only question that hangs in the air unanswered is are you going to go all in on this bet? Are you going to respond with full confidence and assurance? My God is big enough. That's the question. And just like our scenario earlier, it's a risk either way. Because if we go all in on this thing called the gospel and we're wrong, we're going to look real dumb. We're not going to know because we're going to be dead in a box, but to everybody else, we're going to look real dumb. Because we will have spent our entire lives relying and trusting on a lie. And that's a risk. But on the other hand, we risk missing out on the true once-in-a-life opportunity to change everything to overcome sin, to overcome death, to overcome the mess of this world. That's the risk. And if Scripture is correct, it's a risk worth taking. The deck has been stacked in your favor. The gospel is a sure thing. And when we begin to understand the sure thing nature of this faith we have, that we cannot lose because of what he's done, it changes the way we live, and it changes the way we understand and experience our sufferings. We begin to actually live and feel victoriously like champions today because of this confidence and assurance that we have. Our passage goes on. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? There's a lot of trouble in this life. There's a lot of difficulties. The mess comes in all different kinds of forms, right? And sometimes it makes you feel like that old psalm, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Sometimes we experience the mess and the difficulties and the sufferings of our life, and it just, it just pounds on us so much that we just feel powerless. And we're tempted to revel in our afflictions, and to view ourselves as victims of this messy, messy, sinful, broken world. And we'll be happy just to eke out a mere existence. If we can just get through this by the skin of our teeth, we'll be satisfied. Sometimes, like that psalm, we feel like sheep just lined up to be slaughtered by the challenges of this world. But I would recall that uncomfortable question we asked earlier. What if, what if these sufferings are actually essential mechanisms in God's work in your life? What if this crucible that you feel like you're getting crushed up in, what if this is all part of God's work to benefit you and renew you and restore you? Would that change the way you saw the challenges in your life? There's this movie that came out several years ago called Slumdog Millionaire. You may have seen it. It's about a, an Indian young man who grew up kind of homeless on the streets of Bombay, had a really rough life, and through circumstances finds himself on the game show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? 
And he's able to answer all of the questions correctly. And the host and the producers, they all suspect him of cheating. They don't know how he's doing this because this is just some homeless kid from Bombay. So the police interrogate him. They actually beat him. And they're like, how do you know this? How do you answer this? And then the whole movie is really a series of flashbacks where he recalls traumatic events from his life. Every one of them which provided him the answer for the question, whether it be from the death of his mother, whether it be the violence that he experienced, the hunger, the poverty he experienced, all of this had equipped him to answer these questions correctly. So this suffering that he endured and experienced in all this while actually was preparing him to be victorious and to reap a reward that he had never imagined before. Would understanding the sure thing nature of the gospel cause us to view our sufferings in much the same way? That this difficulty, this disease, this financial hardship, this loss, this heartbreak, this ailment, this affliction, would it cause us to look at those things, uncomfortable and painful as they are, and recognize somehow through this, God is making me look more and more like my Lord. Not because he revels in causing misery, but because he is sovereign enough to reach in and in his love say, I'm going to build you up and rise you up from these ashes as something new and beautiful. That's why our passage ends the way that it does and and why we're concluding with this passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. No, in all these things, in all these sufferings and afflictions, We are more than conquerors, not barely conquerors, not just getting by by the skin of our teeth. More literally, we are abundantly victorious through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, and that about sums up everything, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is no difficulty, no challenge, no suffering, no misery hard enough, harsh enough, or difficult enough to tear you out of the hands of this God who loves you enough to use those things for your good. Nothing. And if that's the God we belong to and the God that we've put our trust in, How could we be anything less than victorious? That's the truth of this passage. God works in all things, good, bad, and ugly, for the good of those who love him, for the specific purpose of restoring us and renewing us to look like Jesus because he deserves that kind of praise and glory. In the difficulties, he is moving you one step closer to renewal and to victory. In the challenges and in the heartache, he is moving you one step closer to renewal and to victory. In the agony and in the sufferings caused by the mess of this world, every single one of them is a potential step closer to renewal and to victory in his hands through his power. Be comforted by that. Be encouraged by that. Be filled with peace because of that. Even in the, in the middle of the storm, there is refuge and there is strength and there is purpose through the God who loves us so much. He will not let go until we've crossed the finish line. And you will be there on that day 
when the maker of heaven and earth says, is there anyone else here whose life has been saved by the work of this man so many years ago? And you will be one of the renewed and restored faces that rises in row after row after row of people who sing the praises and the endless glory of the one who overcame it all. And you will revel in the victory of God as his champions. Live like it now. Be victorious now. Because there is nothing that can tear you out of his hands or separate you from his love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this hope and this certainty. You have worked in this world in incredible ways that are still being revealed. And in all of it, we see your fingerprints and your sovereignty and your goodness. And so we ask that that goodness would be evident in our lives as you shape us and form us in our character and in our hearts to be restored and renewed, that we love more like Christ, that we seek righteousness like Christ, that we be filled with grace and compassion like Christ, that we be renewed, not just because it benefits us with eternal life, but because it brings glory to your Son who gave everything to make it happen. Let our lives be living testimonies to his goodness and the work that he has done to save us so many years ago. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm.